All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Geology on the Rocks, a podcast about geology. I'm your host, James the Geologist, and with me I have... Brian Baggins. Hey, sir. Hey. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. Did you make it through the holidays? I did. Uh, didn't do much. I didn't either. Yeah. Well, um, well, um, well, um, that was, <laughs> and there's three. Well, today, <laughs> today with us, we have our, our good friend. We actually graduated with him. We have a, a, uh, are you, are you a professional geologist now? Or are you just a, 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 a GIT still? A git. <laughs> I could have taken, I could have taken my test in October, but I, that's going to be March probably. Okay. Well, we, with us, we have Mr. Jason Young. So welcome to the show, Jason. Let's, Thanks, uh, sir. we'll all cheers. Ooh, you get yeah. a little okay. So, <laughs> all right. So we're back with another episode, episode twelve. We're gonna actually we're gonna go back and we're going to name this one "Ask and You Shall Receive" since it is Thanksgiving time of thanks. So we're thankful for everyone out there uh, listening. And so, Jason, we're gonna just put you on the spot real quick. What's up, man? <laughs> How have you been? I have not seen you since my birthday. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So we're all back together. So it's this is actually kind of what spurred the idea of a, a podcast in, in general. Because every time we got together, the three of us, we were just honestly talking about geology stuff. Like, <laughs> rocks. Yeah. yeah, we'd be at shows and like the bar would be crowded and we'd be up there talking petrology and slowly start to see this rift. Oh, did it? Oh, I did. Uh, yeah, look yeah. at you. Look at you rifting. <laughs> so uh, I did my, I've, I know I've talked about it before, but I did my internship with you at your uh, soil lab you want to tell us about kind of what you do i know we're going to get into it in a little bit be careful because i'm doing quality assurance right now (laughs) 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 the death glares from across the table Uh, we're basically gonna run a a soil mechanics or geotechnical laboratory yeah deal with physical properties of soil and rock mainly soil and i would like to congratulate you you have been promoted indeed yeah so now are you so you were the the lab manager but now you are or just manager? I'm, I'm the general manager of the office. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Do we have Dang. A- uh, yeah, we do. Jason, this is for you. Nope. Wrong one. <laughs> Yay, Jason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. How was your Thanksgiving, Jason? Good, good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is so awesome. This is so awesome. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, no, this is this is. We just spend the the first few minutes just uh, BSing. So yeah. yeah, we'll we'll break you in nice and nice and easy. So how was your Thanksgiving there, Mister Brian? It was good. Didn't do much. We did drive by my grandma's house <laughs> and did like a a wave fifty by. foot dessert high and mm-hmm. leave kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. It. so I feel like a an adult. What I did is I actually made my very first turkey in the oven. I made twice baked potatoes and it was really good. So I I feel like an adult. So we did everything here and then we didn't drive anywhere, but we did do a Zoom call with all the family members and that was kind of fun. Sweet. Gobble, gobble. Where'd you go, Jason? Did you stay this, at home? This was actually my also first Thanksgiving at home hosting. Yeah. My mom didn't feel comfortable going to my cousin's house. Oh, that's where you usually go, yeah. It's one. I have two cousins that alternate, but yeah, it's... So my mom and dad just came over to my house, just the six of us. That's that's safe. We did with the other set of in-laws. We went to Babe's Chicken with a... Yeah. Yeah. So I hope everyone out there, they had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. So what we started last week, uh, we started a, a new segment called New News. So this is just uh, some brief, quick hits about news articles that relate to science. And we try to work our way back into geology. What I found is, I'm sure all of y'all, as we've walked... Uh, Along the beach, normally we find all sorts of shells and types of things and whatever we do. Well, I wanted to point out that this one man, his name was Roger Byrne of Ireland. So he, in the 1980s, he collected fossils and uh, he kept them for quite a long time. And then he ended up donating them to a museum. And then after further examination, a team of uh, researchers actually discovered that they were fossilized dinosaur bones. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, no, that is. So like, and then what makes this a, a special find is that they're, it's actually the first dinosaur bones ever found on the island of Ireland. That's crazy. Yeah, like they're actually 200 million years old and they were actually, what they discovered is looking at the bones is that they're actually two different types of dinosaurs. So it was the Gileadosaurus and, and a Sacrosaurus. So it's kind of like what we talked about when we were the, the mysteries of the Mesozoic. Yeah. It was actually both, uh, one of them was a Ornithischia. Okay. And the other one was a theropod. So one one bird-hipped and one lizard-hipped. Yeah, but the, but if it's still a bird, <laughs> the bird is the lizard hip. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah, we had the other clade that popped up. Yeah, That's that right. randomly. But yeah, so it was found in the Leas group of the lower Jurassic. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, I found one. Biologists have been studying platypuses. Is that platypi? Is that the right way to say that? I, I think believe so. so sorry. I'm, so the, I'm not an Englisher. So platypi have fur that is fluorescent. What? Yeah. So they absorb UV rays. So if you look at it under a black light, you'll see yeah. platypi. It's like cyan. They turn cyan. Okay. So like and, a deep red, like my new geology on the rock sweatshirt. Yeah. They nice. also think that other platypi can see that and it enables them to see where they all are. And so they can evade like whatever predators may be in the area. Oh, that'd be kind of a kind of a cool adaptation yeah oh that's that's pretty sweet so like uh almost like the bees looking with the uv yeah. and the flowers and like landing pods whatever it's so weird because like this is just another thing that platypi have <laughs> <laughs> how about just animals in general not yeah. just platypi like or, well, or more like that we're discovering yeah. that they have right? well, like these guys have like electricity sensing bills <laughs> venomous <laughs> heel spurs <laughs> and they lay eggs and they're a mammal now well, they have glow in the dark. <laughs> I think this is the most advanced species <laughs> yeah. on the planet Earth. That and rattlesnakes, maybe. What? What's not a rattlesnake? They have like heat seeking. <laughs> like they can tell where you are. They don't even have to have their eyes open. Speaking kind of, of just random fact about snakes, did you know like there are two different types of the cobras? Like some that can that have evolved to spit venom. Yeah. That they like they, they shoot it out, and then others can't do it, even though they're the same. Uh, I thought they. I didn't know they all couldn't. Well, yeah, no. Yeah. So like they kind of like the the bird hips diverging oh. yeah hmm. cool okay so my next story is comes from you from a melted ice patch in norway so archaeologists have found 68 arrows in the so the, the <laughs> Juntenheimen mountains okay so they found <laughs> this is what half of our episodes <laughs> no yeah so the the Juntenheimen mountains from more than six thousand years ago so they've also found a 3300 year old leather shoe the the ice sheets have retreated so we know with the climate change global warming has retreated these ice sheets for more than 70 percent over the last two decades what what it's doing is is that it's actually uncovering this trove of once paleo stuff that we used to be around but i thought that was pretty cool like uh yeah. but okay so then the really old fossils so what they've done not fossils but arrows were destroyed a little bit more but they think that it's it's not basically due to the age but it's moved due to the uh mm. the, the ice sheet actually yeah. moving over it destroying it so the scouring yeah, yeah the scouring so that's pretty cool that is cool my other one was they found a meteorite from Mars and zircon is is part of the story, my favorite mineral. But they found over 60 zircon, but some of them came back with relatively very young ages. And so what they're finally getting a glimpse of is part of the interior of the planet in the the volcanic regions. They're able now to date that and then use other isotopic stuff, which we'll talk about in a little bit, to kind of see what the temperature gradients are or were at the time of this volcanic evolution. So I think that's, I just, it, it blows my mind how much that we can figure out like based on your little teeny <laughs> tiny little zircons. That's why it's the best. It's it's nuts. So they can tell how hot it was. Mm -hmm. That's what you're telling me. Then how the hell did it just, so it's just like, so this, this meteor, this, this piece of Mars was just like, Hey dude, I'm leaving you and I'm just going to go head to earth. Yeah. Like, like later with a message. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But like, how the hell did it? So what did it? Is this like, how did it just jump up out of out of uh, Mars? Well, I mean that. No. So it's part of a meteorite. So there is probably a, an impact or something. Okay. Ejected from an impact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But now we have that. We know that it's from Mars, and now we know more about dates and and thermal gradients. So how do we know that it's from Mars? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Good I'm question. Sure, well, I think they they have a good idea because there's only so many rocky planets, right? Yeah, and so they can they have dated other Mars sediments and other rocks on there. So. Dude, I I trust I trust you <clears throat> and your and your reading abilities. You probably read it right. I'm just I'm just <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. Okay, so the the last story that we wanted to get to, or I wanted to get to, is that I don't know if any of y'all have noticed if you looked up into the sky all summer long, we've been able to see Jupiter and we've been able to see Saturn. And then behind it, we've been able to see Mars, right? Have y'all have y'all noticed that? The two bright planets that are, I guess, I don't know what direction. Yeah. It's that way. I saw Maybe. some bright stuff that don't twinkle. Yeah, no. So <laughs> so Jupiter and Saturn, they're going to form a double planet in the sky and will be the first time in 800 years that they've been this close together. And they're from what we can see. So they're going to be like a, a fifth of a diameter apart from each other. When is this happening? 
So that's what I'm getting to. So it's going to be any time from the December 17th to December 25th. I feel it, like this is like, I saw this on Avengers or something. Yeah, like no, but the, <laughs> so, but the, the closest that they're going to be is going to be on December 21st. The last time that they have been this close together, you have to go back to my birthday, March 4th, but of 1226. Yeah. So it's been like the last time that they've been this close together. And then the next time that we will see them like kind of make this double planet will be in the year 2080. So, wow. No, I don't know if that's the right one. It's more like, that's a poorly placed drop. Okay. Okay, so today's episode is we're going to go back to the name of you ask and you shall receive. So we have some hot topics concerning shale. What we're going to do is we're going to first wrap up our conversation from that we had last week. We talked about numerical dating, and then we're going to get into Jason's topic, which is going to deal with dirt and soil and what makes him angry about geology words being thrown out there, misrepresented, and talk a little little bit about soil so we'll have fun conversation about that we'll get into a little bit of a mineral minute and then i wanted to talk about air pressure and then we're going to get into a pretty cool that freaking rocks so brian you want to go ahead and lead it off there with that yeah numerical dating numerical absolute radiometric whatever you want to call it we talked a lot about relative dating last last time and that could not give us a, a definitive answer on exactly where in time something was it could just relate it to other things that are in that same outcrop that you're looking at this type of dating actually has a numerical value to it and we look for certain clues because you can't just go assign any clock to that so let me back up clocks i think i've said this before on this podcast oh yeah 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 it's you have different ones and so different Isotopic systems, one element, a parent to a daughter, will have a certain decay rate, a decay constant. That will work depending on what kind of sediment or rock or whatever you're dating. You wouldn't use one that had a really long half-life for something that a Holocene deposit or something like that. Yeah. So what you do is you look for clues. You brought it up earlier. You would never date a rock outcrop with carbon-14 dating. You would, you would look for clues like organics, like say you have a piece of charcoal or something like that. So any type of organic material, radiocarbon is usually what you would go for. Yeah, no, I think there's a, what people who study this, so I mean, I, 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 it's one of those uh, things that bother me is there's, there's certain tests that you do that are appropriate for the rock type that you are going to date. And there, there are certain parameters that we have to put in place. And then I guess what, really irritates me i guess this could be the, the episode of like mm-hmm. what ticks us off right. <laughs> <laughs> because like people they're like uh oh, when i radiometric date or when i carbon 14 date that rock it says that it, they don't give you right numbers so how can we even trust radiometric dating <laughs> and i'm like uh you can't radiometric da- or you can't you can radiometric date uh rocks but there's certain yeah there's I- certain ones that you have to do and then Carbon-14, again, like you said, is for organic material. And so I did make a mistake. I said that you couldn't date rocks. Coal is technically, we. some people still call that a rock. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's sedimentary it, rock. Yeah. yeah, but it is, I guess, yeah, now it's inorganic. So it, it could be technically a rock. <laughs> but you So you can date a rock outcrop like that. But really, you would look for stuff that's organic. Wood fragments, leaves, yeah. something like that, or terrestrial snails, that kind of thing. Bones, bones, but not, um, but not fossilized bones, right? No, carbon only goes back fourteen thousand years or so. I think it's seventy. Seven, seventy, yeah, seventy, seventy, seventy. Yeah, seventy. So I think we'll get into that. But what have you talked about? Are you going to get into the 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 main types of like the alpha, beta, and electron capture? Or gamma? Uh, I wasn't going to go too much into that. Cause yeah, it gets I feel like pretty detailed. Um, I'll just put on my spectacles and go. <laughs> yeah, you, if you no, want to. no, 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 no. Okay, so okay, what we do need <laughs> to do is kind of have some kind of blinders on, so we get twenty minutes per. Okay, good. Well, then I'll, I'll run through these real quick. So radiocarbon, definitely for organics. We typically use potassium argon for dating things like that have like a lot of potassium. So whatever you're looking for, you, you look for minerals that are in a unit and you look for those and you should know at that point, like what cations are we, are we looking at? What, what anions that we can date? And so like orthoclase, it's a potassium feldspar, sylvite, any of the micas, volcanic glasses and clays, you can use 
potassium argon. So, uh, they went further argon argon dating. It's argon 40 to argon 39. That supersedes potassium argon because it's a little more accurate. So that's something people are like, oh, well, your plus or minus on, on your age dating is 2 million years. Like that, that's so much time. It's like dude, we're talking like 200 mil- million years ago and you're, you're bitching at me over. <laughs> yeah. And how, how we, <laughs> we talked about last, last week too, about just like the time scales and everything too. Like yeah. Earth, billions of years versus millions of years. It's right. yeah, a, a 1%. Yeah. Not even 1% one, error is nothing. No. Yeah. Half and, a, yeah. and, and a lot of this too, it's, it's corrected to like less than 1% error, right? Like they, they yeah. got it down to like a science. So how it works, like you talked about the, the parent daughter isotope ratio, right? Oh, so yeah. yeah. So what's happening? So you can imagine if, so we know these rates based off of, uh, they're calculated. So we know based on the, the, it's a ratio. If you start with all of the parent isotopes, so this is the original material that say that it's lead or no uranium, right? Everyone, yeah. I think, I think uranium lead or is a pretty common one. So yeah. we know uranium decays into its more stable isotope and that, and that's how we get heat. So this is basically all of this radioactive decay is what is driving our internal processes in earth too. So it's, it, it wants to go from unstable to stable, right? So uranium, if you have a hundred percent of uranium, so after one half life, you're going to have half of uranium and then you're going to have half lead, right? right? So we know that in, to get to that half-life, it's going to be how many billions, millions of years is it? Oh, for uranium? Uh, uranium lead. So it's 4.5 uh, yeah. billion years. So that, that's the half-life, right? So we also almost the age of the Earth. So then you would take another half-life. I think this is where it gets confusing for people too. Is So half-life, what you would be left with after two half-lives is you would have 25% left of the parent material and then you would have 75% daughter. Yeah. So then that would be... 9 billion years. And then if you were to do it another half-life, then you would be at 12.5%, right? So 25% divided by, because it, it, it's each time that it takes half of that parent material. So it'd go 150, 25, 12.5, 6.25, 3.875, something like that. So then it's this ratio, and, it, and you can see it in a graph. So yeah. I digress. Go on, well, No, it, that's a good point, because so the I, I should have started with that. <laughs> but yeah, so when, when it experiences radiation, it's losing energy. And so you'll notice like you always say like, oh, like lead 207 to 204 or 205, excuse me. And those are mass numbers. So, yeah. we, you know, you have your protons, electrons, and then your neutrons. And that's what adds up, right? Your protons and neutrons for your mass numbers. And so what, what happens is it will lose energy. And you always notice that the number of the daughter is lower. Yeah. And so it's it's losing. And so you can look on your periodic table and see like where these are and why they like the uranium series is the way it is, is it decays down the line. It's pretty, pretty cool. No. Yeah. And then that's a, I know it, it it's a pretty complex, too, if you look at it. So what it's it's like a 13 step. So you have like uranium goes to thorium yeah. and it goes back to uranium. Then it goes to whatever PA is. Uh, palladium. Palladium, yeah. then thorium, then radon, radium, then radon, then yep. whole <laughs> ball. Anyways, then it gets to lead. <laughs> But so what, what I think is cool. So when, whenever I was uh, doing all this, so when it has a alpha or beta emission, so I get, or whatever it does, it remains kind of like a super activated. Mm-hmm. And then how it loses that energy is through gamma radiation. So it shoots yeah. off that electron. Right. So anyways, that's cool. <laughs> Great story, James. <laughs> um. Well, I also want to say, I know I've heard you mention this before, James, like somebody had said to you, how do we know the half-life is 4.5 billion years if we can't observe it? So we don't have to observe a full half-life no. to figure out what the half-life is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like any anything that you can, although it is empirical, I mean, these are things that have been tested in great quantities. Uh, uranium, they put a bunch of barrels and they observed the change. Yeah. And they were, because of how much they had, that's, we're not talking, like when we measure these now, it may be in parts per million or parts per billion and we'll get ratios. But when they're doing this, they're, they're doing these in large quantities. Yeah. That was part of, I think, the Manhattan Project is yeah. why they yeah. learned that one. And then plus, like, it's not like uh, this new magical thing. Like, I think what, since it was Curie, the, mm-hmm. I don't know, atomic theory has been around since the 1901 or something right. around this. So, I mean, it's pretty well understood. Like, yeah. if you don't believe in radiometric dating, then you shouldn't believe in <laughs> your smoke detectors. Yeah. Right. Because that's what, americium. Americium. Yeah. So it's like... <laughs> That's, uh, that's yeah off sad. off topic, but we actually use radio radioactive materials in in our work testing 
soil density in the field. Nice. We use a potassium core yeah. in these uh, density sensors. So our, our lab actually has a radioactive closet. I mean, we use closet. them every day. Yeah. Correct. If we don't know specifically the half-life of this material that we're using in these density sensors, we can't calibrate them. We can't use them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not like this made-up thing, but if you were <laughs> to take a piece of something that is from a not a closed system so if you're just to take this uh, random piece out and date it of course you're not going to get uh, reliable it can vary greatly so you need to take it from a place that you know that it's in a closed system that it's it's it can be uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh it can be representative yeah so i mean like it's not it's not bs and even to go further than that a closed system so one of the ones that i was going to mention quickly is you mentioned thorium uranium thorium 234 uranium and 230 thorium, they're used to date carbonate rocks. And so you can date like speleothems or it's cave deposits or like I actually will be using this coming up to date carbonate rinds that have grown around gravel clast in alluvial terraces. And so you can date this, this growth, because the uranium is in the water. Like mm-hmm. Even the like the water and whiskey and whatever we're drinking has uranium in it. Delicious. Very, very like parts per trillion, maybe. I don't know. But basically, you, you date this, but what could happen is you have a what you think is a closed system, but you may be picking up dead ions from yeah. the limestone terrain. And mm-hmm. so that's why I mentioned all the different clocks you usually do not want to use just one, if right. possible. Organics, that's another deal. But um. And then, so, like, it's also, I remember conversations that we had with Dale, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Dale Simpson, how if you're next to water, it kind of uh, throws numbers off, too. So, like, it's, it's we do account for these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, a, there's definitely, like, correction factors. I have not really had to deal with them as much because he's talking about, like, carbon intake along shorelines. I don't have to really deal with that because I'm usually dealing with 100 million, 200 million years. No, but you d- you were talking about kind of the salt being intruded into it or yeah, gets that, absorbed. that'll throw off. Strontium will get pushed to be enriched have a higher ratio of when you're doing rubidium strontium. So that so those are things that that's more of actually getting a fingerprint of what the rock looks like, but what I would do is if I'm out there and I've had to think about this for the past few weeks is I'm going to be use uranium thorium, but I'm also going to look at using cosmogenic isotopes. And those are isotopes that we get that bombard our atmosphere, right? And yeah. then they'll come down. So for instance, like the nuclides 26 aluminum and 10 beryllium, they'll bombard little quartz grains and they'll change they'll change the 16 oxygen oxygen in quartz to 10 beryllium and then the 28 silicon is transformed into 26 aluminum. Those both have different rates at which this happens. And so you can observe, as I noticed, like, or what I said is like, it's when it comes down to the surface, when it was last exposed. And so it's when light and those photons can interact and carrying that ion system with it, it'll stop the accumulation when it's buried. Yeah. So I would use that. I'd use uranium, thorium, and if I can find any charcoal, I'm going to do radiocarbon. So, and so yeah. I know you talked about argon, right? So some source of error too, which is pretty cool, is that it's, in fact, limitations of potassium argon method arises from the fact that argon is a gas. It has the possibility of leaking from minerals resulting in radiometric age that is lower than the actual age. So indeed, it's going to actually lose, uh, it can lose a significant amount if the rock is subjected to high enough temperatures. So what I think is cool that if if a rock is heated to the point to where all of that argon and its mineral escapes, then its radiometric clock actually is reset. And then that that number that you're getting is actually that time of the thermal reset, not the true age of the rock. Yeah, you and, and that ex, that exists in other minerals too, like zircon. If it's heated enough, like different cores in a zircon can do different ages. So as yeah. it grows, like you'll notice if one is more brown on the outside, it's not a really clear zircon crystal, that will give you a clue that, hey, maybe this has been heated and you'll get resets in ages and it's called a metamic zircon and it says, hey, this is metamorphism. This has been plunged down and it's been subducted or whatever. And so you're able to tell that versus a volcanic zircon, it's not as zoned as much and all the ages seem to line up throughout the crystal. They, they actually take a laser, it's called laser ablation, and they pinpoint different parts of this maybe 10 micrometer crystal 
and they go in and then they run it through a mass spec. It blows my mind just like where, how we've come along and are able to do like all of these types of things. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more pervasive than most people realize. No, we yeah. use it for everything. And then also to that, to guard against a lot of this error that some people are worried about is that they don't just do one type of radiometric dating. So scientists often use cross checks, subjugating a sample to two to three different types of methods at right. the same time. So this is actually going to result, uh, if the results agree, then the likelihood is high that the data is reliable. And if the results are appreciably different, other cross checks must be employed to determine which, if either, are correct. So yeah. are we are we almost up on our time? Two oh, okay. minutes. So, okay. oh no, what I was just going to say, so some of the oldest rocks on earth, oh, yeah. were you going to talk about that? No, but you should. Okay. So all I was going to say is that we know that the earth is 4.6 billion years old, yep. but the oldest rocks are what are like 4.3-ish billion years old. Something like that. Yeah. So how do we know that the earth is 4.6 and not 4.3. Uh, I would say the remaining amounts of parent isotopic. Yeah, I think yeah. it's actually from meteorites. Oh, meteorites you're yeah, right. so like, well, yeah, that's in, the leftover bits that weren't uh, consumed in the creation of planets. So, oh, you're right. Yeah, that's so. Awesome. So what they did is like all the rocks on Earth go to 4.3, but then the meteorites, they're all down here at 4.6. So yeah. they kind of, you can make that linear correlation. That's that, right. They did lead lead dating on those. Yeah, that's why we know that. Um, I was gonna. You don't remember the, that from petrology? Oh, no, I, I should. I and I hope Doctor Basu does not listen to this. Uh, <laughs> Jason loves Basu. Oh, yeah. Can I go two minutes over? Yeah, no, do okay. whatever you need to do. All right. So I wanted to, y'all, y'all were like, how can we tell like if the thermal history, right? Of when we were talking about the uh, Mars zircons. Oh. Stories by Brian. I do have a story. This is great. Okay. Stories by Brian. So, I'm so excited. Long ago, well, maybe not that long ago, in the St. Francois Mountains, I think they're in Missouri, the scientists sampled <laughs> zircon crystals. <laughs> Out of the granitoids and rhyolites in the area. They did run laser ablation and mass spectrometry, and they were able to get about an age about 1.4 billion years old. But that's just half the story of what they found out when dating these. They also saw an accumulation of helium atoms, which is a... <laughs> That's funny. They also saw that, or they know that helium is a byproduct of that decay. And what they were able to see is this big blip that happened. And they could see that in this zircon crystal, it all stopped. And so when they dated it, it went back to about 850 million years old. And so what they were able to see is they know that it's called a zircon trap. And <laughs> what happened is the zircon trapped all the helium because helium's so buoyant that it'll go up in through all the, the crustal rocks, right? And it'll come out of the surface and eventually leave Earth. But the zircon trapped it. And it trapped it because it reached a temperature in which its crystal structure will trap everything that's in there. And then you start any decaying that happens. But what they did is they took not only the ratium uranium to thorium and its abundance and compared it to helium. And they could find out and rewind back to when that trap happened and see that zircon crystal was brought up over six kilometers from its original position, because that's the thermal gradient that they've tested in labs with zircon. So they were able to see a an orogeny being built at that time, and it matched up the road. What is it, Rodinia, or what's the pla the continent? Okay, that's it. I mean, you're trying to be like, right? No, that was anything. No, yeah. So <laughs> I was just waiting for you to break so we could kind of like. <laughs> No, yeah, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, so they were able to match it up with that orogeny. Yeah. Uh, but also, they found another blip that showed Pangea's break. Oh, nice. In just this one crystal. One crystal? Yeah. That one Zircon crystal. Zircon is the best mineral. Not only is it... <laughs> it's not Sphene. Don't say it. Stories by Brian. <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst story yet. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think all of that is I I don't understand how they just imagine like like that was never a thing and then all of a sudden it was a thing like you're like oh from this like you can infer it like I it I really 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 smart people I admire. yeah yeah for us it's like oh yeah we can spit this back out but to be the one to figure that out yeah no I oh, man that is that's 
We made it not too far off time. No, and so, I and, that's and, and good. listeners, we we say this out loud, and James may or may not cut it. I don't know, but I don't know. It depends. Yeah, but we are notorious for going way over our a lot of time. time. We're like, hey, we're just going to do a quick hour episode, then we'll go home, whatever, and uh, then it ends up being an hour yeah. and forty minutes. So thanks for sticking with us and listening. Yeah, yeah. So now we are on to Jason. Do you want to introduce your topic? I, I kind of wanted to get introduce people to, to the differences between how civil engineers look at soil and rocks versus how geologists look. And I know a lot of us, a lot of the people that we went through school with, I could probably name five or six right now, are working in engineering geology. I want to re- say somewhere that I read that geology and earth environmental scientists, it's like where it's the jobs are just not available. It's like I, I read it's like a pointless degree. Because <laughs> like if you think you're going to do like actual inver- environmental like science, like no, you're pretty much going to be working as like a, a lab <laughs> person right. in an engin- engineering firm doing right yeah and i think that's all the people that i've seen like that you can see on their instagram stories or like you chit chat with like it's they're all in engineering it seems like you're in engineering you're in engineering i try to pretend i'm not so i i introduce a lot of geochem and i like purposely i'm like well i really need to go map the <laughs> structure, so i'll be back in a week <laughs> I, do, I, I actually do need to do that but well i think it's important for the engineers to have us there yeah. no it's yeah. a different way of thinking yeah. like right so civil engineers care a lot more about the the physical properties of the rock or soil how strong is it yeah will it hold something up geologists tend to look at the biological and chemical aspects of it more so in the how yeah how did it get there why is it there what's going to happen to it in the future all the engineer cares about is it going to hold up this building but we should i mean like so they're more concerned about that but i think with the with all that we're more concerned like oh okay well that's a soil horizon or like right not just and then the bedrock like beneath it if it's a limestone underneath it because then you could have caverns in a karst system yeah. right right so it's not just oh the strength of this the topsoil right we want to know a little bit more down further. yeah they, they want to know how deep the bedrock is yeah how strong it is where they can plant piers if they have to put piers, how big the piers are going to be. I think it'd be interesting because I've never heard a civil engineer talk to me about soil matur- maturity. No, right? you, and, you won't. And and that's that's a big flaw, I think, in, on their side. God, if we have civil engineers listening, which I may have some people from work listening. Oh, but, awesome. but well, the, the geology, the people that I know, the engineers, they, they take a one semester class in geology yeah. and it's half of it is software driven ArcGIS and the other half is basically intro to historical geology and that's it. But I feel like we on the same tide, if we're going to put the that shoe on classifying them we only take or at least in our in our master's degree we had to take one engineering class and right. it wasn't even it was engineering economics right, right. <laughs> so we knew it was like oh it's uh, yeah i don't yeah, i don't know there's a lot of things they do that we are not exposed to at all yeah yeah i don't i don't even understand like really the engineering side of it i'm just like oh well, we'll just look at it. it's very like test based and i will say that just like like some of the stuff we we were talking about like it's been around since the 19 early 1900s right a uh, lot lot of the engineering tests haven't been around any longer than that like they're they're relatively still new in science but i mean what we prescribe like at work when we submit for testing nothing like that extraordinary it's always the same test like the engineers are after something they're familiar with most of most of the tests we run they've been the specification was written in the 1920s exactly or 30s yeah um and not much has changed since then. A lot, a lot of people are trying to make changes to these test specifications, but it, it's kind of, you know, fixing something that's not broken. Yeah. But, but nothing- then also, this is that, that mountain and mountain is evidence too, to like suggest like, well, that's, you know, like if it's nothing's been proven different, then why should we go against it? Right. And then you've had all of this data since then that's been collected to kind of just further, I, like, this is why we don't change it. I think the reason people want to change is we've seen failure of structures. Okay. And so you, you, may have something that's not performing the way it should and it's like well hey here's the let's go back and probably there's probably going to be a legal case on this right and now we have to pull up all the data data checks out so and and whoever signed off on it so maybe we thought of the problem incorrectly and so a lot of engineering is like okay yeah like case study history that's what it's all about like okay well this dam like i'm speaking of dams because that's what i deal with uh but yeah like you may have like they may do certain tests for this like really sandy material, but they don't, those tests don't necessarily work the same if you have like just a silt. Well, no, the, the, specifically the dams, we were working in a project, doesn't matter where, we were re- verifying tests that were run, I think in the 60s when the dam was created and we had to buy special equipment to exactly duplicate how the test was run then to compare the results. The boxes, the soil boxes that we were using had to be a specific size, specific shape because that's what they were using in the original testing. Do they account for, because we know that 
with water going through it that it can change just the actual the physical like the chemical makeup of it so i know that's why that's the difference right like it, it evolves over time it's not ever this kind of a this yeah it's not static and so it'll, that's the word it can change and that's why the why that's where we come in right? yeah like right. so and, and we can say the why and so before you do you're like oh well this borrow area looks good well let's look at like how long is the water sat there like you may have this strength right now with this clay series but you may have illite growth after yeah or Montmorillonite may change. If you take that from this area with this water, real quick, Montmorillonite can become, uh, it can swell, but it can also be dispersive. If certain water chemistry gets in there and it'll try to sit in the crystal lattice and break it apart. And so if you take like a borrow area, then you're going to borrow material and use that to construct a dam. Then you move it somewhere else with different water chemistry that might be there. You could potentially have a problem. Right. We have had to pick up buckets of water from a lake to saturate our samples in the lab to use the exact same water that's on in the fight in the field that's on on site yeah and then you know i mean i guess the engineers anything here i guess they don't really understand like why well why is there so much clay in here but right it's like (laughs) geologically speaking we can go back in time and right i've had to get the whiteboard out and talk to the junior (laughs) junior engineers they asked me why is there this sand here when everything else 30 feet is clay it's like well it's fluvial deposit this is an old channel you ran into yeah i love y'all's whiteboard sessions (laughs) (laughs) okay so what is this I'm going to play the idiot because I don't know what this is. The Munsell book's 400 plus colors <laughs> versus brown or gray. We use the Munsell book in field camp. The book with the yeah. six, 24 or something colors on every page with the holes in them you put the soil behind. 10Y, 5R. Right. It's very specific that. colors. Oh, yellowish, tan, brown. Okay. Um, gel or the engineers basically use two. It's they, brown and gray. Yeah. So they and just use, they don't, there's no in between. There are some variances of it. Light brown, dark brown, tan, maybe reddish brown. That's basically all they're going to use. That's all they care about. Okay, so I'm, I'm guessing that the gray is going to be more silty clay and then the brown's going to be more sand? Not necessarily. The, the, yeah. the, oh. the, the sand content is not... The mineral content of the clay. The or so the, if it has iron in it? Definitely that. Yeah, the iron will certainly stain, stain yeah. the soil. But is that going to tell them anything different? Not really. They don't, they don't care about the color that much. No, that's why they that's, just make you do it and you're like, I'm never going to look at this stupid line <laughs> that I'm writing down ever again. And I, and I fret over when I send reports out. You know, I go check the colors every single sample <laughs> yeah but nobody really cares no one cares but yeah i mean because i'm i get is it because is it for when they go back out to go look at this thing or if they get it, into like a certain depth or like it should be this and then if it's uh, not this color then it th- that's part of it they want to okay. know if they're going to set piers at 20 feet they're going to see a color change there the driller's going to look for a color change right on that strata that's a good point also so i when we've used it like which i'm using other properties that or more reliable, but we'll do that for a cross section. So if like I need to know 800 feet away and I'm going to have 10 borings, right? I'm going to be able to not only, because if you're dealing with clays, like sometimes that's really hard to deal with like, okay, well, am I still, did this layer pinch out or not? Right. And so you may use that Munsell color to correlate. Uh, I would, I've heard, I don't usually use that. Okay. So. I get it. So no, I see this. So grading versus sorting. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's, it's, as geologists, we do it one way, right? And then the engineers, they do it the opposite way. Right. Yes. And it's the same exact equation. The yeah. same exact math. Just backwards. Um, I actually failed a lab in hydrogeology because I did it the wrong way. Hydrogeology. Because I had been doing graded for so long, I turned it in and said it was poorly graded. Okay. But the answer was well sorted. And they mean the exact same thing. And I couldn't convince him that <laughs> you use the same math. Yeah. Yeah. And they are the exact opposite. If it's poorly graded, it is well sorted. Okay. If so it's <laughs> poorly sorted, it's well graded. It yeah. all has to do with how steep the grain size curve is. Okay. The steeper it is, that means there's a lot of one particular size. Yeah. And that means poorly graded. Right. But that means well sorted. Sorted into the same size. Okay. Yeah. And we and we determined this from sieve analysis. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And then I I mean I just remember that that was the fun one is hitting the, the the sieves and kind of I never did the I think I just measured them. I don't think I ever made a report. I just I, I did the data in it. Yeah, it's and you like you quantify the fines unless you're like I guess you would do that even if you're doing a hydrometer, right? So like don't you take the fines out first so you're only looking Right. We we generally remo- remove everything minus two hundred, which I think right. is seventy five seventy five microns. Yeah, that's and that's another thing that pisses me off so i still use very fine grain sand right when i'm looking at stuff because you can still see it and determine that it's not a silt right? well different people there's there's no difference between silt and sand it's the same material it's just a different, different size. size you can grain have quartz size that's like 10 mil, 10 
10 micrometer. And different classification systems change where they draw that line. Yeah. Yeah. Some, pl- some places use the number 200 sieve, which is 75 microns. Some classification systems use the t- 270 sieve, oh, which really? I forget how many microns that I is. I think that, so uh, what I learned in sedimentology, we all did too, is that 63.5 micron is the cutoff for very fine sand into silt. That's the one, yeah. Yeah. That would be the number 270 sieve. She was, our teacher, the sedimentology teacher, was using, I believe, a USDA type classification system, okay. which shifts everything down one size. Okay. You're, she was calling gravel two millimeters and above. Dude, that is... And, but in my world, it's it's the number four sieve, which I believe is four point something millimeters yeah. and above. Did no, someone so, just get in a fight? Like, no, is that what happened? Is it, is it the Wentworth scale? <laughs> yeah. Okay, but I don't know. But like, so whenever I teach, so in oceanography, when we do the beach sands, when we do the uh, the different types of classifying, just doing it under a microscope, there's nothing like real fancy about it. We're not doing a sieve analysis. We're just looking at the grain size and we right. just do the uh, the grids under the microscope. And then, so what is it? The the sand is from two millimeters to 156, 1256? No, one over well, one sand of, could be the, the, the range varies depending on what system you're using. That's the problem. No, yeah, and but yeah. I think that like what you were saying to your point, Brian, is that it, it it's confusing because people think that oh, sand is kind of like this this physical thing, but like they there's not really when you think of silt clay, people th- don't think of it as like a grain size. Yeah, see, clay and, is a different material. Yeah, silt, sand, gravel are all basically made of the same stuff. It can be the it's same a different yeah, size. Yeah, that's so you can think yeah. of it just crush up a sandstone and then you just keep pulverizing it and pulverizing it and pulverizing it. The smaller you get, when people say siltstone, claystone, sandstone, or they say like a conglomerate or a pebble or gravel, it's all based on just the individual grain sizes. When you're doing gradations, it's only size. I will say like you can have, the way I've described it to an engineer, because we like we do butt heads sometimes, is it you have clay and you have clay minerals. Right. So like a phyllosilicate type mineral, right? Kaolinite. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's a sheety, flat yeah, exactly. type mineral. But you can have, and this is the thing, and we like we get way too involved and hopefully we're not wasting taxpayer dollar, but <laughs> but you can have quartz grains that are less than two micrometer sizes. Yeah. And it's just... Right. Well, they, like, had to, they had to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. And that's kind of arbitrary where they did it. I think the, the problem is is that and maybe it's not the problem maybe it maybe it makes sense that when you're doing a certain test you ignore everything else you literally only pay attention to that so i'm only looking at sizes everything else nothing else matters there there is some overlap between the largest clay particles and the smallest quote-unquote silt particles yeah but like but as just like if you're out in the field the the biggest the biggest way that you can tell tell right is that uh when you do the when you grit it in your teeth if it like (laughs) if it grits then it's what it's it's the silt and then if it doesn't it's clay because clay is the smallest yeah correct yeah i I usually don't do that yeah i don't do that either (laughs) well that's because you don't lick it no no oh man they love it when you lick it (laughs) always (laughs) that's why when you said that you can't date a rock i can date a rock i lick it i treat it right i treat it right so it's not always shale it is not always shale but it is shale it's such a catch-all it's easy it's it's very easy and people it's like brian Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, shale is a shale, shale is <laughs> uh, shale is a type of mudstone or claystone. It has shale properties. It is a mudstone. Yeah. It is a mud shale. It is a clay shale. And people tend to call any kind of muddy clay rock a shale. Well, shale has very specific properties. Yeah, I do feel like it is often overused and confusing because... Much like moral. Yeah, that's that's Brian's favorite. <laughs> God. And caliche for, for Brian. <laughs> I mean, uh, for Jason. Me, yeah. I think for shale, it has to be laminated. It's laminated. It's fissile. What's, okay, can anyone remember I can't. I know it's a millimeter size, but laminations versus striations. Yeah. What's the what's the size? It's a size thing. Is it like less than ten millimeters? And you are such a size queen. I don't recall. Yeah. No, I no, don't. I, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but it is a number. I will tell you it that is, is it is number. there is thin laminations versus uh, striations. Yes. Yes. So yeah. that that that's why I would determine a shale a shale as I would I would look at that. Yeah, it's a very blocky, brittle, laminated mudstone. And then another thing is people 
if somebody mentions something like the Barnett Shale or the Eagle Ford Shale, I've run into this a lot of times. People say, oh, well, it's all shale. No. No. <laughs> a majority of it is probably a shale mudstone, but there are other rocks, you know, limestone, sandstones in these formations. That's just the primary rock in this formation, like the one I'm working on, the Bell Canyon Limestone. Well, it's got a lot of other things going on in it. Yeah, but I mean, it has but, to do with the, the depositional environment, right? So it's right. going to be overall mostly limestone, but it, it's not going to say that you can't have some parts that are sandstone. Yeah, during, during this formation deposition, there's going to be changes in sea level, changes in yeah. conditions, changes in climate that affect yeah. what's being deposited at that location. I guess that's for the for people out there wondering, like, why do they call it, you know, the, the Goodland Limestone when it, you know, it has a whole bunch of Brian Marl in it. Like, right. it's, <laughs> well, it's, it, 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 it grades out just like right. you can yeah. have, yeah. Again, a sandstone and a shale is really the differences. I mean, like, there are, like, mate other differences right so you're going to have more of your like aluminum uh, yeah. uh your feldspars weather out right that's what creates all these clay minerals yeah right well in that like it's either we do it that way or we have like ten thousand formations in fort right. worth texas well like, if you dig yeah. it, if you dig into it there are subdivisions in these things you know members <clears throat> members and such yeah. so but a lot of people don't get into that well i will um mineral oh Mineral minutes. Mineral. Mineral. Mineral minutes. Minerals. Today's mineral minute is brought to you by the calcium silicate carbonate hydroxide buccalite. <laughs> the chemical formula for buccalite is CA4SI2O6. It's got a carbonate anion, anhydroxy anion. Why don't you just read two. the damn... Because I, I like it. Okay. <laughs> With common impurities of buccalite are aluminum, iron, magnesium, sodium, potassium, and phosphorus. Buccalite was named after the tight locality at Fuka Mine in Takahashi City, Okayama Prefecture, Japan, and was first discovered in 1977. <laughs> More recently, buccalite has been found in veinlets cutting hydroxyleostodite, metastomatic rock at Gumshevesk, Skarn Copper Periphery Deposit in the central Urals, Russia, and in Skarn Carbonate Xenoliths of the Doverian Layered Gabbro Periodotite, Massive North Baikal Region, Russia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the occurrence of buccalite is a retrograde mineral and alteration product in scarns from metastomism of limestone. The mineral itself is pale brown to white that <laughs> streaks white. Buccalite has a hardness of four and a specific gravity of 2.77. Oh, buccalite mineral. Buccalite <laughs> <laughs> mineral. No, it's me. Oh, I got it. Oh. Okay, hold on. Breathe in. Buccalite minerals are. Um, are optically biaxial, 2V equals 90 degrees, and have a refractive indices, alpha equals 1.595, beta equals 1.605, and gamma equals 1.625. Acids decompose the mineral with effervescence. When heated, the mineral loses H2O and CO3, what Brian said is the hydroxyl and the carbonate, at about 600 degrees Celsius with the formation of laurinite. Stay tuned for next week's sponsor, Anal <laughs> Minerals, minerals, minerals. All right, so that was another mineral minute. So what I wanted to bring up is air pressures. I know a lot of people may or may not know what air pressure is. If you try to visualize it, so if you just look up into the sky, imagine from the tip of the, the globe of Earth, all above you, you have that invisible air. So it's a column of this air above you that is pressing down on you and exerting a force on you in all directions. So it's not just up and down sideways. It's I mean, it's all directions. So And this is what we call air pressures. There's a, a way that we measure atmosphere air pressure so the weight of the air at sea level is what everything is calibrated to and i believe it's equivalent to what they say what at one atm <laughs> one atmosphere so so the the weight of the air above you at sea level is measured uh, to be about 14.7 pounds per square inch or one kilogram per square centimeter so the units of measurement are what we you'll see either as mb or millibars or standard sea level pressure the two main is uh inches of mercury or this millibar so at sea level the the millibars is 1013.2 millibars and then standard sea level pressure is 29.92 uh inches of 
mercury. So the two main types that they use, well, let's take let's take a step back there because I know we were talking about before we started all of this when it came to the <laughs> <laughs> the mercury, right? So how they even realized what air pressure was is that uh, the guy Torricelli, right? So he's the one who created this uh, mercury. So what he did is he submerged this uh, tube. I, I feel like it was something to do with uh, before Aristotle. I don't know if it was if I'm reading that right. So he stuck this tube into mercury and he inverted it. And what he noticed is that he would go. Uh, um, up a mountain and it would change right so the air pressure would drop so that mercury would drop in that tube so right. like why would it do that and then what they would notice is like from that is whenever you would have these storms come in or there was it's bright and sunny this uh at the same place like in his house this column of mercury in this vacuum tube would change up and down so so what it, so what was it exactly at your job that you did that was i i've got a a digital pressure manometer okay and we have to calibrate that once a year against a mercury standpipe manometer okay that i put together so, every year for this purpose do, do you wear gloves oh yeah two <laughs> yeah, so, and, and anything that that the mercury touches that is the only thing it is used for and it is put away after this yeah. is done and not touched until the next year do yes. not play with mercury please. yeah no no so like uh much like everything we have the standard that we measured against so the what this device that torricelli made was the mercury barometer so he uh, invented it in 1643 and it's still basically the standard and what it basically is just this glass tube that balances mercury and air pressure. What's happening is if you imagine if you have this plate or a dish, if you will, filled with mercury, and then you have that vacuum at the top. So what's how how it changes inside that vacuum is that that force of air being pushed down on that column of mercury, right? So you push down on the mercury, you have higher pressure, and it's going to push up the mercury inside that tube. And then if you have a low pressure, then it's going to drop that mercury. So the other type is an aneroid barometer, so without liquid. So this is using uh, expanding chamber more... Uh, it's more portable. This is what I have up on my wall over there. And then basically, so it changes. And then what you do is you would uh, put the uh, hand on where it was, and then you can see if it's rising or falling. And then you can see, so if it's falling, it's probably gonna be low pressure. What this actually sets up for is that it's actually going to affect wind. I know we've talked about uh, wind before, but what is wind exactly? So wind is just this horizontal movement of air from areas of high pressure to areas of low pressure. And wind is controlled by the pressure gradient force. That's the main thing. Mm -hmm. That's what's actually causing this wind to move. And then we've talked about the Coriolis effect and how it affects it. It's going to deflect it to the, the right in the northern hemisphere and the left in the southern hemisphere. And then what we see is at, at, at the surface, I, I know you asked me something crazy about, oh, friction, right, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but anyway, so at the Earth's surface. So that's only where it's going to be affected. That's so weird to think about, like, wind. You're like, oh, well, the wind's coming from here, but like, what pushed the wind here? Because air has a mass, right? And so it it's yeah. due to pressure just i'm thinking of like is it like convectional is that like kind of um it's kind of like um the the pressure gradient force but we just know that uh things move from areas of high pressure to low pressure right mm -hmm. so if you have varying at different latitudes or just anywhere in like the xy plane if there's a difference in pressure right in those millibars this whole mass of air is going to move towards that area of low pressure mm. on lines of equal pressure so that's what we're going to call isobar so the iso means same so when you have areas of differing pressures it's it's really going to cause this massive air to move horizontally from high pressure to low pressure and this is what we call wind. So if we look at a map showing all of the air pressures in the United States and you had uh, an area where the isobars were spaced widely apart, this would represent weak winds or strong winds, Brian. <laughs> strong winds. No. <laughs> okay, so, um, so then how about if the isobars were close together? So think of a topographic map. If you have bars that are of the elevation that are steep or they're, they're close together, is it's that going to be steep. high relief? Uh, high relief, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be high wind. Uh, so if you have these large uh, isobars that are spaced out, you're going to have gentle winds. That's all I was highlighting. Mm. So it's this gradient that's the, there's a change in gradient. So if you have a higher pressure change, you're going to have higher wind. Okay, so how does the Coriolis effect that I know that everyone is dying, how does the Coriolis effect affect wind? So here we see the Coriolis effect again it rears its ugly head but if you remember it's the apparent deflection of that wind direction due to the earth's rotation so this deflection is to the right in the northern hemisphere and it is to the left in the southern hemisphere
factor. If you remember, the higher that the latitude is, the greater the effect has. So it, it's as you go towards the equator at the equator, it doesn't. It's not as strong or prevalent as it is near the at the mm -hmm. poles. How does the friction matter in all of this? So friction is only important near the Earth's surface. It acts to slow the air's movement and alters its direction. This pressure gradient force and the Coriolis effect at the surface cause air to move across isobars. So this is what's actually causing it to move across these bars is that friction. So it's slower at the bottom and it's at the top and it kind of causes it to deflect to the right a little bit. So whenever the Coriolis effect counterbalances this pressure gradient force is where we get these up high geostrophic winds. So they're actually going parallel at, at elevation. So that's why we have the westerlies, right? So they're going this way, but pressure gradient forces usually are north-south. Not always. But anyways, I'd, uh, it's hard to kind of uh, visually represent this. So you have this idea of highs and low pressures, right? So we talked about this air pressure pushing down on you versus it's not. So if it's pushing down on you, it's high pressure, right? If it's kind of moving up, it's low pressure. So this is, so we call these cyclonic and anti-cyclonic winds. So in order for a surface low or cyclonic pressure to exist for a reasonable period of time, compensation must occur aloft. For example, surface convergence would be maintained if divergence aloft occurred at a rate equal to the inflow below. So whether generalization, generalizations about highs and lows. So whenever the, the pressure tendency is rising, it means that a high pressure center is approaching. So because highs are associated with descending air, there's this fun word. I like adiabatic. So adiabatic is a cool yeah. word. So I'll show you all uh, a cool thing um, on, on the Instagram of adiabatic uh, creating clouds. But anyways, adiabatic warming precludes cloud formation. So it heats it up, it's drying it out. So you don't get this uh, cloud formation. Thus, we can assume clear, fair weather is going to be foretold by a rising barometer. So conversely, when pressure is tendency is falling, a low pressure center is approaching. And because lows are associated with rising air, cloud formation is likely and precipitation is possible. Thus, cloudy and possibly rainy weather is foretold by a falling barometer. But that's not always the case. So this is not always the case, guys. So sometimes there's uh, localized winds and we can see this. So these are small scale winds that are produced by locally generated pressure gradients. What this is, so you can have land and sea breezes. So during the summer, we know that solar radiation is going to heat the land surface near the sea more quickly than it heats the water due to the uh, the specific heat of waters. But anyway, so uh, the, the hymothermal <laughs> inertia. So a thermal low pressure develops over the land and air flows onto the land from, from the sea, which is at a relatively high pressure. And then at nighttime, right, it, the, the land cools off more and then the, the you have warmer water over the ocean. So that warm water rises, that warm air rises and it's pulling up that air. So it's a low pressure. So then you get the, the land breeze at night. And you can see this in uh, mountains and valleys, right? So you have breezes going in and up and down. And then, yeah. So do you have any questions about Fascinating. air Air mating, fascinating. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think of it is it's kind of like air mating, like because that they're working together. It seems like it's all about that equilibrium thing. Like they're like you said, like like low pressure will then that also has to do with cloud formations, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, and then what's interesting? So like, I didn't get into it. There's a lot that we get into it, but like, so when you have cloud formation due to the the latent heat of uh, evaporation, or not evaporation, but condensation, it's releasing more heat into the environment. So like, what people don't realize is like when you do have those thunderstorms and why they it creates this kind of like unstable atmosphere and why those what do they call them uh the big thunder clouds yeah the thunder clouds you know like the the big um anvil shaped uh they're called uh cumulonimbus the yeah. cumulonimbus like why those rise so much is that environmental lapse rate uh, uh is a lot greater or no it's less than than the, that rising air so the this rising column of air is giving heat back out into the in the atmosphere so when it, it still has a tendency to rise it, that's why they get so freaking high yeah. and then when it comes to the friction on the ground that's what creates these mesocyclones which if you have so it's it's going slower at the earth's surface and it's not as much friction here mm. so it's going faster right so it creates this kind of rotating column and then at the edge of the thunderstorm you have uplift so what happens when you have this uh, rotating column of air and it gets It'll uplifted <laughs> and then you get tornadoes have you ever wanted to be a storm chaser i do absolutely not have I've you been, i've been in i've been in have you have you ever seen a tornado I've been in one. Oh, you've been in one? I was living downtown Fort Worth when the one hit there. Oh, oh really? yeah, I know. So that was, what, 2000? 2000. 2000. 
Dude, I remember that I was a sophomore in high school. I was, I was a I was twenty two living in a loft in downtown Fort Worth, next to the <laughs> next right next door to the Bank One building that got demolished. Basically, oh yeah. So is that oh is that where you were the shipping and feeding is now? I was working. Yeah, yeah, there. Wow. No, I, I was living in the electric building, which is, okay. Oh, I know those. Yeah. Did you have you? I'd, seen a tornado? Uh, yeah, I, I, my friend and I, when we were living in Louisville, we knew a tornado was coming up 121, and we're like, let's go look at it. <laughs> and so we were like chasing it, and it got to a point where it was pouring, we couldn't see anything, things were flying around. All we were like, at the luckily probably saved us, but I was like, dude, we got to go back. Don't like, try this at home. But also with the Coriolis effect, we know uh, which way tornadoes spin. Oh. So it'd be to the right up here, right? To the well, left. no, I mean like they they spin counterclockwise. Oh, okay. no matter where you're at, same thing. But no anyways, matter. oh yeah, I guess it dep- yeah. No matter in the northern hemisphere, they're always going to rotate because it's that Water. that low pressure in the middle. So it's going to and we did all that. We did that, and I still haven't. But so I saw one uh, in 2002, and there it was at Lake Arlington, and it, there was a water spout. And then I I remember that I you know being crazy little 18 year old, I was like, oh, we don't need the sirens are going off. You could see if you looked up, you saw like this like these dipping clouds, and then it was like crazy like across the street, like you could literally it was not raining, and then you stuck your hand into like this like it was just rain you could stick your hand in and out of like this rain thing so like we saw that it was moving across the lake and me and my buddies were like we're standing on this pier and we see this water spout but then you see like the main event like all these like feathery things they just got like sucked up into this cloud and then it just like dropped on this neighborhood yeah and i was like oh man that sucks and then we tried to go across the lake and look at it and then it was yeah it got tore up that's my story Uh, (laughs) i didn't mean to bore everyone with air pressure i think i like air pressure yeah i feel like every time you talk about oceanography or just the atmosphere atmospheric I, I, like, I learn so much so i'm just sitting here like yeah there's y'all don't ask any questions and i'm just like okay well i'll just keep going so i'm like oh james will think i'm dumb i'm a fraud no <laughs> no no so that was the geology portion of rocks now we're going to get into And we are into another that freaking rocks. Freaking rocks. It does. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea of this one is going to be we're building our own band, but we have to pick our uh, from different bands. So we're plucking different people from different bands to make our own super band. Are we actually in this band, or are we like the manager? Let's let's you say can be if you want. Let's uh, say that we're the manager. Okay. So we got we got we got to put together. So I like to think of it when you said this. I I immediately thought of Isles and Glaciers. It was a super group. It was like Chiodos, Pierce the Veil, oh, yeah, a couple other along that vein. Or was it Temple like, of the Dog? Or back in the yeah, day, kind of like circle. yeah, right, yeah. All right. So who wants who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay. 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 So my singer, my vocalist, would be Dustin Kintru from Thrice. Okay. I think he has godly voice and it's awesome i like i really like his lyrics i don't i don't play in a i play in an instrumental band now so i don't really care about lyrics but i still care a lot about his <laughs> so i would choose him my guitarist guitarist one i would have jeremy galindo from this will destroy you write some really good melodies and knows his way around like different ambient sounds and just an overall good composer other guitarist i'd probably choose brendan ekstrom from circus survive that dude is really good at orchestrating poly melodies so like multiple melodies going on at the same time bass i would choose eddie breckenridge from thrice and then my drummer really like drums that much (laughs) uh this is a hard one um (laughs) i don't know any drummers uh i guess travis barker (laughs) (laughs) screw you brian So that's it. That's uh, the band. I don't know what it's called. Um, anal cream. <laughs> anal cream. What is it called earlier? What? What was the mineral? The next mineral? Anal, anal, anal semi. semi. <laughs> 
Your turn. Oh, uh, well, I picked front man. And I hope it's pronounced pronounce his right name right. Ben Koalewitz from Billy Talent. Okay. I don't know if y'all have heard of them. Yeah. He doesn't have the cleanest voice, but I like his energy. Front man. He's an excellent songwriter. I love all their songs. I picked for my guitarist, Jack O'Shea from Bayside. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, you yeah. No, yeah. We went to go see that. That yeah. dude rocks out on he that guitar. He is insane. For bassist, I went with Chris Wolstenholm from Muse. I don't particularly care for what they've been doing lately, but he is an excellent bassist, I think. Especially in their early records. Yeah. And Chad Zeliga, who has been in Breaking Benjamin, Black Label Society, and Black Star Riders. He was with Breaking Benjamin during the recording of Phobia, nice. which I think was my favorite album. Excellent. What's your band name? My whole Guitar Hero's band name was Jason Jason's Ashes. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. He loved you, I guess. Yeah. Oh, y'all are looking at me. <laughs> Crickets. Hold on. Uh, what is the... <laughs> can't think of the band name. Oh, what's the band name? <laughs> okay. All right, so I am going to go with the drummer that I want to go with is Mike Fuentes from the Pierce the Veil. I like so his uh, his big openness, or I, it was a toss-up between that or the drummer for August Burns Red. He's so good. Dude, he's, he's dumb, dumb. Yeah. So <laughs> then I went with lead guitarist is Will Swan from... Uh, God dang it. I, I'm having brain farts. Dance Gavin Dance. Dance Gavin Dance. But I, I know we've talked about this. So he has like his own type of guitar playing. And then, so he's going to be my rhythm. And then I'm going to have John Mayer as my lead guitarist. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah, dude, he's, he, a lot of people hate on him, but no. dang. No. And then my singer is going to be Jeremy McKinnon from A Day to Remember. Nice. I like how he can scream. And I like his singing is not whiny. <laughs> so a lot of my music is is whiny, like post-hardcore. But he, something about his voice, like it resonates with me. I'm just like, man, it's, it's not too low. I don't like, for some reason, I don't like a deep male singer, like with a bunch of the 90s butt rock. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking of one particular band. <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. all are. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, so then the bassist, I will go. Let's say Eric Barassa. Oh yeah, from yeah. A Patient Zero. Right, dude. I watched his videos like a m- yeah. multiple ones, and I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, right. I was like, I need. He was he was our guest last week, Eric Barassa. He's gonna be my bassist. So yeah. then my band's name is gonna be called Geology Rocks. So original. It is original. So original. (laughs) Well, all right, everyone. That has been another episode of Geology on the Rock. I'm your host, James the Geologist, and with me, Brian Baggins. And we hope that you stay tuned and keep it on the rocks. One of these days, Brian... We're going to have to hear that that song of you rapping about rock. <laughs> yes. I, I have it. S-I-O-2. <laughs>